0: Welcome to down to earth but heavenly minded podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. Thoughts on John's first epistle. By James Boyd. Chapter 4. Having introduced the spirit into what he has to say to them, the apostle raises a note of warning, because every spirit is not the Holy Spirit of God, and many false prophets had gone out into the world. We are, perhaps, a little apt to take things easy, and to go about as carelessly as if there were not a foe in the universe, forgetful that the spiritual world is ever in restless activity and that a great warfare is being waged between God and Satan, between righteousness and sin, between good and evil, between heaven and hell, in which no quarter is given or taken, where no truce note is at any time sounded, where the battle is always at its hottest, and where the contending hosts fight at all times with all their might. It is in the souls of men that this war is being waged with restless activity, and the issues are eternal. We require to take this to heart, for we are in danger of flattering ourselves that occasionally there comes a suspension of hostilities, that an armistice has been proclaimed. And the ever watchful foe is not slow to take advantage of our carelessness. This battle, as I have said, is fought out in men. It is men that come to us, and that seek to get us to hearken to their words, but it is wicked spirits in the persons of these men with whom we have to wrestle but if they are to be overcome they have first of all to be detected, for they do not always present themselves in the livery of their master. Oftentimes they come in a garb of sanctity, with a very plausible manner and alluring ways. But they can be detected, and by a test so simple and perfect that even a babe in Christ, were he only vigilant, might stand sentinel for the whole Church of God. The test is easy of application. We have no need to allow ourselves to be enticed beyond our depth by the craftiness of the cunning foe, we do not require to know every crooked way the serpent may take. Neither are we compelled to point out with nicety and exactness every weak point in the armour of the adversary, we need only to know Christ, and be content to test everything by its relation to him. This will discover to us friend or foe, whatever garb may be assumed. There is today a great deal of speculation around us about things of which the scriptures speak very plainly, a great deal of boast, bluster, and pretension, concerning the scientific discoveries of the learned. We are being constantly reminded, if we would only pay attention, of the inaccuracies of the sacred writings, and of how many doctrines contained therein have been exploded, and perhaps we see through the hypocritical reasonings of these men. Or perhaps we do not, but we have not been left upon earth merely to write books to prove to the world how stupid wickedness always is, we can do this better by our lives than by our words. It may be all well enough sometimes to answer a fool according to his folly, but generally it is best not to pursue these dupes of Satan into the morasses of darkness and error. Where their rebellion against the true light has led them, our business is to keep the fortress of our own souls well guarded and to do this successfully we need to detect the enemy when he appears. And we can do this only by the test given us by the Holy Spirit, a test which is all-sufficient, and that test is Christ. Should we meet one whose outward life, from a human standpoint, is blameless, and whose speech is smoother than oil, but whose doctrine is a denial that Jesus is the Christ, we know we have met a liar. If one came to us denying the Father and the Son, or who will not confess Jesus Christ come in flesh, we have no uncertainty in our minds as to what spirit animates him, it is the spirit of Antichrist. It is much more easy to stand firm than we sometimes imagine. It is not necessary that we should be learned or clever in a worldly way. We do not need to be instructed in evil to be able to overcome it. We had better leave the depths of Satan to be explored by his own children. The less we know about the darkness and its works the better. It is not important that we should examine the arguments of the leaders of this world. They are of the world, they are great in it, they speak as of it, and it hears them. They are from beneath, and their utterances are the exhalations of the bottomless pit. They assume, at least many of them do, to be God-fearing, to have a veneration for the works of God in creation, and a certain amount of respect for the holy scriptures. It is a very good book of morals, but Christ is carefully left out of their theories, or if casually introduced, it is only as one of the many great sages of the world. The fact that he is a divine person come in flesh, to give that flesh for the life of the world, is not for a moment to be entertained. In contradistinction to these men who were of the world, and who spoke as of the world, the apostles were of God, and to them was committed the testimony of God, and whosoever was of God heard them. In this way we distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Nothing can be much more simple. Christ is the touchstone for everything. He is the true light in which everything is seen as it really is, and we have in addition to this, the writings of the apostles of our Lord. And we must reject everything that is not in agreement with their words. Ye of God, little children, and have overcome them. This is how it is the saints get the victory over the seducers, they are of God. How could those that are of God be defeated? The one born of God does not practice sin, cannot sin, chapter 3 verse 9, he overcomes the antichrist, chapter 4 verse 4, he overcomes the world, verse 4, and he overcomes the wicked one, verse 18. And why does he overcome all that is arrayed against him? Because the one who is in him is greater than the one who is in the world. God is in the saint, the devil is in the world. To become a Christian in the true sense of the word, is not merely to change one's religion, and to adopt new notions. It is to be rescued from the power and dominion of sin and Satan by divine power coming in and taking up its abode in the body of the believer, and it is in this new heavenly and divine power that the saint becomes an overcomer. The devil, the implacable enemy of God, stirs up man as the rival of Christ against God's authority with a view to the destruction of the weak and foolish creature. God has not up his son for the fulfilment of his counsels of blessing, and he will gather everything in heaven and on earth under his headship, but man, desirous of exalting himself, Falls a ready prey to the wicked machinations of the devil and allows himself to be used as the antagonist of Christ to his eternal rum. With this spirit of opposition to Christ, the profession swarms today. It appears in various forms, religious and otherwise, but it is easily detected, it exalts man and not Christ. The one born of God overcomes it. Who then is this that is born of God, in whom there is one greater than he who is in the world? The answer is everyone that loves, hence the importance of cultivating divine affections. Love is of God, it is his nature. It is not the natural affection which is common to man. It was not in Adam innocent, though every proper affection belonging to that order of man was found in him. It is of God in the sense that it is his nature, and being his nature, it is the nature of his children, those born of him. And therefore the apostle would have believers follow after love. It is the one great thing to be pursued. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God, and knows God. In this lies life eternal. God is known by His children, and known in His nature, in all the love of His heart. He is known as Father, the babes know the Father. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. He can only be known by those born of Him. Between Him and others there is no affinity. In verse 9 we come to the way in which this love has been manifested. It was there before ever it was brought to light, and the manifestation of it added nothing to it, but it could not have been known had it not been declared. It is the great light of our hearts, for the Holy Spirit has shed it abroad there, but it can only be known in the way in which it has been manifested. It has been declared to us in connection with our need as fallen sinful creatures. We cannot, I think, know it in the way in which Christ knows it, for he knows it perfectly, and altogether apart from manifestation, because he is a divine person. We know it in connection with mercy and grace and compassion shown to us as ruined sinners. He knows it in its own essential character, apart altogether from those attributes in connection with which it has been displayed toward us. God has taken occasion by our desperate condition to make his love known to us, and I think the way in which we have learned it is the way in which we must ever think of it. But it is the same holy and eternal love that the Son knows, which we know and enjoy, and which is, and ever shall be, the portion of our hearts. In verses 9 and 10 we have the way in which this love has been brought to light we lay under death as the righteous judgment of God on account of sin, and no creature was able to help us. If we thought of God it was not love filled our hearts, but terror. And not only was his judgment upon us, but we were alienated from the life of God, we wallowed in the pollutions of the flesh and spirit. We had no desires after God. We found our enjoyments in things hateful to him. There was not one thought of our hearts clean in hill sight. What was pleasing to him we hated and what was hateful to him in that we reveled. There was not one thing about which we had thoughts in common with Him. We were steeped in moral corruption and were dead toward God. But He had thoughts of life for us and sent His Son that we might live through Him. If we were to live, the judgment which lay upon us must be removed from us, and the affections of our hearts must be won. That this might be, His Son has become the propitiation for our sins. He suffered for them as the witness of the love of God toward us when there was no love in our hearts toward Him. Life was in Him for us when He came into the world. Power to quicken our dead souls so that we might live was in the Son of God. But the question of righteousness required to be settled before we could be brought out of death in the power of his life. Therefore, it was necessary that propitiation should be made that there might be no hindrance to the exercise of his life giving power upon us. He bore the judgment of our sins that righteousness might be accomplished, and in resurrection he has taken the place of life giving spirit. And in the power of the life that is in himself causes us to pass out of death into life. This he does by the gift of the Holy Spirit, who sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. Life for us is in divine love. He who loves, lives, and he who loves not, lives not. It is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts that causes us to live, for we only love him when we know his love to us. Verse 11 presents the obligation under which the manifestation of that love has placed us. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. It does not say we ought to love God. This would be much on the line of the Old Covenant that we love God is taken for granted. We would not be true believers if we did not love God, but the love of God has been lavished upon the saints, and if we profess to love God or to know his love to us, we cannot be indifferent to his own. And as we have already seen this love has come to light in the sacrifice of Christ, hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This we are called to imitate. Not, of course, in the sense of propitiation, which could not be, but in the sense of self-sacrifice. God has so loved us. The waters of death could not quench his love, nor the floods drown it, and nothing should be able to quench our love for one another, it should prove itself stronger than death. Verse 12 shows as the effect in us of the fulfillment of our obligations. God abides in us. Now that Christ is absent from the earth, there would be no light at all were it not for his people. God was declared in the body of Christ when he was upon earth. Up till he came it could be said, no man has seen God at any time, but when he came the truth was, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him, but now he is absent, and the only way in which God can be seen is in his people. But this is dependent upon their conduct. It is only if we love one another God abides in us. God, who is love, is seen in his own, when they are living and walking together in the exercise of divine affections. His love is perfected in us. There is nothing lacking. How wonderful it is that the saints are capable of presenting God in his nature before the eyes of men. And what marvellous grace he has conferred upon us to give us such a place in this dark, cold, lawless world. How anxious each one of us should be to sink every selfish consideration and keep jealous guard upon our ways, so that nothing might be allowed to come in to hinder the light. But that it might burn in all its purity and power. But there is a direction which this love has taken which goes beyond the family of God. It has gone out in grace to the world. This comes in in verses 13 and 14. We know that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Here it is not, I think, the spirit personally, but of his spirit, that is, the spirit of grace and goodness toward all men. He will have all men to be saved. Where this is active in us, we know that we abide in him, and thus derive our nature from him, and we know that he abides in us, giving character to us. In this spirit, we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son as saviour of the world. And where this testimony takes effect in the heart. It leads to the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, and, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. What but the heavenly light which has been brought to us in the person of Jesus would lead any soul to confess him as the Son of God, and who, with the light of the boundless love of God filling his heart, could keep silent as to the lineage of that glorious person in whom the love of God has been brought to him. In all this, whether it be our relations with one another, or in the spirit in which we go out toward all men, it is the effect of the love of God in activity in our hearts. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. We have come under the influence of its heavenly and life-giving radiance. In that love our souls live. God is love, and dwelling in love we dwell in God and God in us. And this love will never desert us. It is our eternal portion. It is the light in which we walk, it surrounds our going. It is the light of our hearts today, and we know that it is sure to us for tomorrow. Our way through the world may be rough or smooth, tribulation we are certain of, but the love of God will keep us company. And will be the strength of our hearts in every circumstance until that day when we shall be manifested before the judgment seat of Christ. And then that holy love will have its satisfaction in beholding us conformed to the image of the judge. We know not what trouble lies ahead of us, we know not what sorrows await us in our pilgrim path, we know not the moment we may be left without a friend in the world. But it is the privilege of each of us to be able to say, tis as sure as the love I adore, I have nothing to fear or to dread. For, herein has love been perfected with us that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is so are we in this world. The relationship in which he is with the Father is ours. The love of which he is the object is our portion, and the place he occupies in the Father's house is our eternal home love is perfected with us, and fear is banished from our hearts. We have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of sonship, whereby we cry Abba, Father. His love has been brought into our hearts in its heavenly power, and fear has fled from us. There is no fear in love. Fear has torment and repels us, so that the thought of God is terror to the soul. Love is attractive, and it begets love in us. We love because he first loved us. When this love came to us we were strangers to it, hateful and hating one another, described our moral state, selfishness, lust, and pride characterized us. But the love of God has wrought a change, and has brought into existence a generation who are morally of himself, and who are marked by love one toward another. Such are passed out of death into life. Where there is pretension to the knowledge of God and nothing manifest but hatred to the brethren, it is mere pretension and falsehood. The commandment is, that he who loves God is to love his brother also.